This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and now YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. And if you go to YouTube and you type in three words, <laughs> Spirit Matters Talk, uh, you'll uh, get our, uh, you can see us as well as hear us. And uh, I want to thank anybody that's uh, contributed to help keep us on the air and allow us to be free and available to the public, along with our archives that now have about 300 shows. Uh, we've had many, many good guests in the, uh, in the last few months, and we have a, a, a terrific guest today, uh, Mr. Stephen Cope. He's a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. Among his uh, works in this area are yoga and the quest for the true self, the wisdom of yoga, the great work of your life, and his most recent work, Deep Human Connection. Uh, Phil will be introducing his book. And he is for almost 30 years now, I believe, Stephen has yeah. been scholar in residence at the renowned Kripalu Center, the largest center for the study and practice of yoga in the Western world. Uh, Stephen, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. And Phil, if you could show and introduce the book. Yes, Stephen, we want to talk about many things, but of course, yes. we want to promote your new book and Thank talk you. about it, The Dharma in Difficult Times. And um, welcome. Great to be with you guys. We always uh, begin uh, with uh, our, our guest's story. We, we'd oh. like our listeners to know uh, how you came to your own spiritual path and mm -hmm. the uh, work that you've been doing. Can you give us uh, the overview? Sure, I can. I, um, you know, I, I grew up in a quite a spiritual family, a Protestant family in the Midwest in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, and, and I was always drawn to it was a it was a Presbyterian college. My father was the dean of the College of Worcester growing up. And so there was this wonderful community in which I grew up with uh, the chapel was really the center of life there. And I, I loved it. I loved the music. I loved the liturgy. I loved the spirituality of that community. And um, so I, I guess uh, that I was just, I was temperamentally drawn to the numinous and the spirituality. Um, I, uh, I went to seminary. I went to Episcopal Divinity School after I went to Amherst College first and then to Episcopal Divinity School with the idea of being uh, an Episcopal priest. But back in those days, now we're talking about 70, 1974, um, you couldn't be openly gay and be uh, ordained a priest. So I was openly gay at that point. And so that was the end of that career. So I, um, I went into psychology. I studied psychoanalytic psycho psychotherapy. Uh, I went through Boston College and some of the um, training institutes in Boston and had a wonderful 10-year career as a, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. Um, I took a one-year sabbatical from that practice when I was 10 years in and went to Kripalu uh, because I'd when I was in my 30s I, or my early 30s, I met Trigram Trumpa Rinpoche, the great crazy wisdom guru uh, at Harvard and became 
absolutely on fire with the Dharma. So there was a wonderful Dharma Datu. There was a wonderful center for practice in Boston uh, where Trinkma came from time to time with a lot of his senior teachers. And that was my introduction to Buddhism and to the East. And honestly, as I just said, I, when my mind met the Dharma, I just was on fire for years, study and practice. And if you know that community, you know that they practice intensively. Uh, I went on a lot of retreats to Karma Chaling. And so 10 years into my work as a, as a therapist, I decided to take a year off, just do practice. Um, and I decided to go to Krupalu because it wasn't that far away. And it was, of course, a great center for the study of yoga and meditation. And, um, and when I arrived at Krupalu, I discovered an incredibly sophisticated community that was interested in this relationship between the East and the West and um, in a fairly sophisticated way between Western depth psychology and Eastern spirituality. Um, and so I kind of fit in perfectly. And as it turned out, I never went back to, it wasn't just a year sabbatical, it's 32 years now, I never went back to my practice. Uh, I became a, a senior teacher at Kripalu and then invented the role of scholar in residence, which has been a fabulous role. I get to teach and practice and and write books. And um, now I'm emeritus, but I'm still very much there and very much present. And we're even though we've been closed for two years, we're we're alive and well. And in fact, just this last weekend had our first non-masked retreat at Kripalu with 250 people. So um, we're we're in this moment in in COVID of we're back. So I don't want to I don't want to um, to trigger the universe's uh, response <laughs> to that, but uh, it does feel like we're back. Yeah, we should let our uh, viewers and listeners know. Oh yeah, that, uh, we're speaking on March twenty eighth, two thousand twenty two. So right. when you see or hear this, we hope. <laughs> It's only gotten better, and uh, these <laughs> not th these were these were what human beings looked like back then. <laughs> That's right. Before the fallout, but uh, uh, Stephen, I have a question for you. Uh, yeah. uh, you started at you you were uh, ordained. At, I think you said Episcopal minister, and, I, and if, I, if I read correctly, at one point you were you had an association with the Quaker Church. I did, yeah. Quaker, and and I know many people, uh, myself to a certain extent. Uh, when we got involved in, in meditation, when we got involved in uh, knowledge from the East and the more contemplative, more meditative traditions, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, we immersed in that. And then at some point looked back and said, you know, actually in Christianity, some of these things actually exist. In my case, there was like Father Thomas Keating, Thomas Merton, people I was reading that I thought, I, I never understood, before I got involved in, in, in TM, in my case, I never really gave much thought to any type of contemplative or meditative tradition in Christianity. But after the fact, I did. Did you have that experience at all? And if so, what was that like? I did. And what I, <laughs> what I discovered in seminary, Dennis, is that um, that powerful tradition, which, which was um, very strong in the 14th, 15th, 16th century church, especially 14th and 15th century with the English mystics and so forth, um, 
there was a powerful meditation tradition then. And I, in graduate school, I read The Cloud of Unknowing, which is virtually kind of a positive medit right. meditation. But when I went to theological school, I discovered there was very little of that. There was very little actual training in how to practice, in how to practice anything. We weren't even trained in how to pray. Right, it was right. mostly theological. It was mostly right. up in the head, which is why when I discovered Buddhism, I went crazy um, in a good way. But then, to answer your question, Dennis, I went back and have since rediscovered the incredible richness of uh, the contemplative tradition in Christianity. And of course, Thomas Merton is the great link to that um, through his entire career, all the way to his journals in, in the East at the end. Um, so I've read, I've read every word that Merton wrote, and I'm a huge fan. And, and the coming, I, I even now attend a Catholic church here in Albany where I live. It's a very progressive, it's very progressive Catholic church. And um, I love the whole Catholic social movement as it, as it gets integrated into their liturgy. And um, so I've always been quite ecumenical about my, um, my faith and, and practice. You know, it's extraordinary how often in our interviews, Thomas Merton comes up mm -hmm. over the years. It, it, and so I would, you know, commend our listeners and readers who are not familiar with him to uh, just start by Googling his name and read whatever you can. Exactly. Start with his brilliant autobiography. Yeah. Um, and then go from there maybe to, well, just any of his books. Uh, the guy was a contemplative, a scholar, and um, of course, he he was drawn to a very quiet life in the Trappist Monastery. But out of that came this amazing renaissance of the contemplative tradition in, in, in Christianity. Yeah. Yes, and he legitimized the um, four Christians, um, sort of gave permission to Christians to expand, to take in uh, the teachings of the East and others. And his, his correspondence with uh, Buddhists and Hindu oh. teachers, those are beautiful documents in themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I got very interested in Merton's. Merton was very interested in the will, the will of God. And um, that's a subject that interests me very much. Uh, the, um, the, the two books that I've written on the Bhagavad Gita are, um, have that as a shadow in the background. Uh, but it, the will is something that we don't talk about in the West and, and, and not at all in Western psychology, actually. So Merton, I highly recommend Merton to your viewers. Beautiful writer, too. One of uh, Merton's contemporaries <laughs> that I've read he had interaction with was uh, Allen Ginsberg. Oh, yeah. Allen Ginsberg actually yeah. drew very much from the uh, Eastern tradition. Matter of fact, the first time I saw Allen Ginsberg, he was being uh, interviewed by uh, uh, Buckley, William F. Buckley. Yeah, and, Buckley. He, he, and Allen Ginsberg <laughs> took out an instrument and started chanting and... Uh, and 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 uh, the, the the interviewer did not know how to react, of but he, he felt there was something very profound there. He had to say yeah. that, but yeah. it was so over his head. And I'm wondering, 
if you're familiar with Ginsburg and any of his writings or, or thoughts you think helped promote um, Buddhist thinking, uh, contemplative thinking in the, in the, in the uh, West? They absolutely did. I mean, he was, he was one of those bridges that, that arose in the 50s and 60s um, that, that opened the door to the flood of teachers right. that came in in the 70s. I mean, I was in graduate school in the 70s, and you could literally, you could meet your guru in Harvard Square back right. then. And, and Chukum Trungpa was there, and, um, you know, a lot of the great yogis. Um, and so I, I love that period when, as, as our great friend wrote, when the swans came to the West. Um, who was that? What was his Rick name? Rick Fields. Rick Fields, that's right, the former editor of Yoga Journal. Yeah. 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 Um, I should let our listeners know that if you Google Allen Ginsberg on William Buckley, you'll see that segment. I often play it at uh, it's, it's, workshops. I didn't know that, Phil. It's a great uh, interview. No, it's, 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 it's a, a great document of the times when he breaks out his harmonium and chants the uh, Krishna Maha Mantra. And they close up on Buckley's reaction. <laughs> <laughs> it also shows you how far we've come in, in our thinking, which yeah. is documented in, in, in Phil's book, uh, American Veda, that you know yeah. it was so unknown at that time. Well, just the whole idea that he he interrupted Buckley, the great intellectual, and went underneath the kind of ordinary discursive mind into that in into the depths immediately with his chanting that's that's where you go so i i what a brilliant move right? yeah. thanks uh, thanks to youtube it's immortalized i know um, nothing ever goes away <laughs> uh steven you mentioned will and and i think you said uh, something about the theological tradition of talking about god's will yeah. and um there's some parallel in there to the concept of Dharma. And um, your new book, Dharma in Difficult Times, The Dharma in Difficult Times, um, tell us how you came to that, but in, maybe even before you tell us that, um, your use of the term Dharma, uh, Buddhists often say the Dharma, uh, in the yoga tradition, we talk about dharma, one's dharma, uh, sva dharma. Uh, you have a, a hand in all these worlds. How do you use the word dharma and how would you define it for our listeners if they don't know uh, what it means? Sure, it's a key word. And, you know, dharma is one of those gorgeous Sanskrit, Sanskrit words that has many layers of meaning. Usually in the Buddhist tradition, it, it usually means path, law, teaching, truth. It, it just so happens. And of course, it comes from the, the root DHR, which means to hold together. So the dharmic forces in the world, especially in the yoga tradition, are seen as those that promote union and order and the, the coming together of, of society. Um, and in the Bhagavad Gita, and, and the Gita is fairly unique in this, the word dharma always means um, sacred calling, sacred duty, sacred vocation. Um, and of course, the, the view is that 
if you do your sacred duty, if you do your true calling, um, it holds the whole thing together. So I, I, I talk about Indra's, Indra's web, which is a great story that I, I think you talked about in your book, Phil. Um, that goes back to the Vedic times um, when Indra, the god of the thunderbolt god, lived on Mount Meru and so forth. And the, the tale is that he had spun a great web over the entire universe and that at the warp and woof strand of, of, of each part of the web uh, was a gem that held together that particular part of the gem or of the web. And, and that gem was a soul, was a human soul. So it's that human soul's job, dharma, duty, to hold together just his or her own part of the web. Otherwise, the whole thing starts to unravel. And that unraveling is called a dharma or against dharma. Um, and, and those are the forces that that Krishna and Arjuna struggle with in, in the great tale of the Gita. Um, but I, I, I love the idea of the Dharma. We, people are fascinated by the notion and, and have some inner knowing that, yes, we all have a calling. We all have a purpose and a reason. And how do you get at that? And so this great tale of the Bhagavad Gita really helps us to to talk about the notion that we have a sacred calling. Now you use the word svadharma, Phil, and in the Gita, they use the word svadharma, which means your own dharma. And of course we know that when that, when that treatise was written, you didn't get to choose your dharma. It was chosen for you at birth. You were born into a caste, into a varna. And um, that has of course transformed into uh, the notion of svabhava, one's own unique idiosyncratic nature, and, um, and, and what is the calling to our own idiosyncratic nature. So I bring that together with Merton, who, who wrote brilliantly about God's will, and, and the notion that Merton says, God's will is not a concept, it's a living reality mm-hmm. that reaches down into your soul, into, into the world, and you, you um, struggle with it or fight with it or go to war with it at your peril because it's real. And of course, that's exactly how they saw Dharma. It's, it's real. And if I can follow up, Dennis, um, the first time I read the Gita back in the early 70s, uh, a few verses stood out. And one of them was, uh, the passage where Krishna says, better death in one's own dharma. The dharma of another is danger. Yeah. And right. that That's hit me. Right. You know, we were young seekers and uh, didn't want anybody to tell us how to live our <laughs> lives. And, and this was, in fact, saying, no, you, can, you must follow your own way. Right. And, and you, it was not only permission to follow, do my own thing, as, as it was said in those days, but it said, you really must, you must. because it's right. better to die than, than, than to, than to follow. So, so I, that's one of the things that drew me to, to my path, because it was like, oh, I can be myself. In fact, it's better for me and the world if I can be myself. And then, please, 
Take no, e exactly. I mean, that particular passage is translated differently. I love the, the translation you just gave. Very often it's it's softballed as it's better to fail at your own dharma than fail at, to yeah. at the dharma of another. Um, but uh, <laughs> and, and that cuts through all of our notions of success. What is success and failure? And of course, what the Gita points out is we don't know. We don't know what success or failure is. All we can do is discern our calling and then do it with every ounce of passion we have and let go of the outcome because we don't know we don't know what the the intent of the universe is for that those actions yeah and it's better not only for you but it's better for your uh, community or civilization right. and so forth because it, it, when everybody does that when everybody acts in accord with dharma mm. uh, it has value beyond themselves, which is a big part of your book. Yeah, it is. It is. I really wanted to write a book. So I started writing this book before COVID happened um, because I'd been through a very difficult experience with, um, uh, with a, an organization and um, had was feeling poorly treated and was into that space we all get into occasionally where the world's unfair. The world is so unfair. And so I went back to the Gita and, and, and looked at Arjuna's wrestling with the question of, okay, in the, in the face of this conflict and this unfairness, how do I act? How am I called to act? So that's what I started with. And then COVID hit, the whole world changed. There was this upwelling of interest in social justice again, which we haven't seen since since you since we were back at Amherst. In the 60s. Um, and and I realized I had to rewrite the book. Like I had to write it for the times that we're in. Um, so I went back and and very much almost a kind of nod to what you did, Phil, in your great book was that I traced the impact of the Gita on American culture. Um, starting with Henry David Thoreau, who read it at Walden, and yeah. then moving all the way through Harry Beecher Stowe, and a whole series of Americans from Thoreau and his great essay on civil disobedience, all the way to uh, Ruby Sales, who's a current activist in Alabama. Um, that includes Martin Luther King and a bunch of other characters, Sojourner Truth and so forth. Um, so that it would, honestly, I wrote the book because I wanted it to speak to the yoga community, which is my community really, even though I, I'm very involved in the Buddhist world too, but um, the yoga community has uh, not always been perhaps interested enough in the common good. And, um, and I wanted to show the yoga community that there is a scripture that is all about the relationship of personal fulfillment and the common good and that you can't have one without the other. Um, because, you know, I, I teach at Kripalu, have done for 32 years, love it. But honestly, it's been a very privileged world. It's a very white world. Uh, it's a very up on top of the mountain world. Right. And um, there's a certain amount of Western narcissism that is just saturated, um, and maybe it's inevitable, saturated our community. and. Uh, it's time now to move off the mountaintop 
So, um, so this book moves off the mountaintop. It's very well put, actually. And I think it's something uh, that Phil and I have uh, wrestled with and, and discussed before. Yeah. Even if you look at a magazine like Yoga Journal, it reflects all, and, and nothing against Yoga Journal, it reflects all of those right. that you're saying. In, in your book, uh, uh, Dharma in, in, in the Dharma in Difficult Times, uh, these are difficult times because of COVID. Uh, we got involved, probably all three of us, in, in meditation and spirituality because of the upheaval in society at our time. So per perhaps, uh, you know, difficult times, good things come out of them. And and when when some, if somebody comes to you and says, I, I'm going through these difficult times, I've read your book, uh, really moved by it, uh, but what, what, how do I, I, I don't know my dharma. I'm middle-aged, I'm in the middle of a job. I, I don't think this is it for me. What, what, what do you recommend? Do I go inward? Do I go outward? How do I look? How do I get into the Dharma for me? Right. And that is the chief question I'm asked. Because in, in my first book on Dharma, uh, I posited four central pillars of the Gita, the Gita's teachings. One, discern your Dharma. Two, do it full out. This is what we call the doctrine of unified action. Three, turn it over to God uh, or something or a higher power. Or no, three, let go of the fruits and then turn it over to God. And it turns out that once you're really on to having discerned your dharma, those other three roll out pretty easily. But where people in the West really naturally struggle is, well, how do I discern my dharma? How do I discern what I'm called to? Um, so I, I teach retreats on this and I I always point students to three, what I call very fruitful hunting grounds for Dharma. Um, the first one is uh, what's lighting you up? Pay attention to what it is that lights you up. And that's a very visceral experience. Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. A little bit like that, like pay attention to what you are fascinated by in the world, what draws your attention. Um, even if it's something that seems small or unimportant, unimportant, just pay attention to that. So the first domain that I point people toward is, is an energetic understanding of what, what draws them. The second is very different. The second question I always ask is, what do you feel as a, as a profound duty in your life? Um, and by duty, I mean, my definition of duty is what is it that if you do not do it in this lifetime, you will feel a profound sense of self-betrayal, right? So the duty is called for from within. It's not necessarily what's imposed on us. But what is that ardency inside that it may not fully light you up? Like I, I work at Krupalo. I do a ton of stuff that goes along with the lit up part. I do a ton of stuff that's duty, and it doesn't necessarily light me up. I... I've spent years raising money for Kripalu. That hasn't necessarily, that's my, not my thing. I'm a wasp. <laughs> the idea of asking for money is antithetical. Um, so what lights you up? What's that ardent duty? And then the third one is, is there any difficulty in your life that might be a doorway into Dharma? Mm -hmm. So in my first book, I wrote, for example, about Marion Woodman, the great, feminist Jungian analyst that I taught with a lot. And when she got bone cancer, she said, okay, bone cancer is my Dharma now. And I'm going to mm. this. 
whether it means I die or live, it's my dharma. I'm in it with both feet. Well, she went into it and she, much to the shock of her doctors, was healed, lived another 10 years, taught great teachings after that. So the, the name of that chapter is, if, if difficulty arises, take it as your dharma. So sometimes a divorce or an illness or a, a life change can actually be a doorway into a calling. So those are the three, lit up, duty, difficulty. Well, well, well put. I think that's very important information. And, and uh, it, it's something actually for high school students, for, for college students, Good. very yeah. important. I, I come across so many young people that struggle with what should I do? And usually they're told, okay, uh, go for money. Or they're told, you know, once in a while they're told, go with uh, what what you enjoy. Think of that. That's probably the, the better advice. But I think uh, what you, you just said, those three points, if every young person could hear that, uh, it would have an enormous impact on the collective happiness of, of, of society. Because so much of unhappiness comes from people going down the wrong road. And, and think about us. We're all about the same age. Um, I don't know about you guys, but there was very little sense in my growing up in Midwestern Ohio that you could follow your own calling. Oh. Like, there were boxes that you either you plugged into and right. were successful or you didn't. And my family was aghast that I turned out who to be who I am. Like that it wasn't what they had in mind at all. Well, <laughs> I hope they adapted. Um, <laughs> As many parents have, many parents yeah. of our generation had to, you know, yeah. adjust to their children's imperatives. I'm so glad you added those elements because in my experience, people who hear the word Dharma, they're always, they focus on occupation hmm. that, you know, almost making Dharma synonymous with you know, what am I called to do? And they and they hear things like follow your bliss, and they assume that if they just do what uh, gives them pleasure, then somehow, you know, they'll earn a living at it and all that. And Dharma is much more complicated. And you brought in the responsibilities we have, the Dharma we have to parents, to neighbors, <laughs> to, you know, family, and, um, and that Difficulty is a very interesting thing, which brings us to your current book. Um, very early on in, in the preface, you say um, you, you bring up the, con the concept of a disorienting dilemma, mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. you know, immediately, if you're familiar with the Gita, makes you think of Arjuna. But we all have disorienting dilemmas yeah. and often tragedies and crises, as like you mentioned, Marion Woodman. Yeah. Uh, and the way you described it made me think of the concept of a paradigm shift. Yes. Uh, it's like an individual paradigm shift that has to take place. Could you discuss that and why it uh, uh, can be a key moment in a person's yeah. spiritual life? Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the concept of the disorienting dilemma actually comes from um, transformational education. And there's a whole science of transformational education, but they notice quite wisely that the, the willingness to uh, examine oneself and one's own deeply held beliefs uh, is very often enhanced by a dilemma that 
challenges our uh, conventional beliefs about how things are, how the world is. So, you know, I talk about, about Emerson and his, the death of his first wife, his beautiful young first wife who died 18 months into their marriage. And it blew him away. This, he was living in orderly Concord, Massachusetts in the 1820s and 30s. And, and it, it completely blew his ideas of how things should be away about what death is and, and when it should come. And I tell the story of how he walked one night to her mausoleum, pried it open and looked at her body. What is this? So in the Buddhist tradition, of course, there are, um, there are, there are built into Buddhist teachings, confrontations with reality, with the truth of how the world is, that then spark great spiritual pilgrimages. So in Buddhism, it's the four holy messengers. I don't talk about this in this book, but death, old age, illness, and the wandering mendicant or the holy person. Um, it, it's confrontations with these aspects of life that force us to make more subtle our understanding of what the laws of the universe are. How does this work? Um, and of course, the whole, all of the contemplative traditions are about uh, examining how it really is. You know, the great Buddhist monk wrote, Ajahn Sumedho wrote his great book called How It Is. And, um, and so very often these disorienting dilemmas come at the beginning of a, a new stage of spiritual growth and spiritual path. And it's kind of archetypal. I, I referenced John Bunyan, who at the beginning of the book, um, his, his, his character, uh, Christian, was confronted by a disorienting dilemma, and that was the spark for him to go on his pilgrimage. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question about this. Yeah, and um, in the time, we don't have that much time left, Stephen, but what do you hope people will get out of the book? And, and let me ask another uh, uh, similar uh, question, which is, um, I was uh, surprised and pleased because when I saw it, I thought, oh, it's a self-help book. <clears throat> and it's, you know, like very, very much like the one I wrote. Yeah, right. With your same editor. <laughs> oh, with Tony Burbank? You're kidding. No, no, with, uh, with Hay House. With oh, with Hay House. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So mine was spiritual practice for crazy times, and you have yeah. a difficult time. But yours is very different because you do focus. I, I talk about it a, a, a bit in, in my book, but you really focused on these people who are exemplars of a social responsibility and, and social activism. And you, you know, this bringing together the inner life with outer responsibility and sort of engaged yoga. Yeah. Um, I, I was very pleased to see. So tell us what you hope people will get out of the book and, and why you chose to orient it that way. Well, you know, I start with Gandhi, who was, we think of him as the, the primo exemplar of political action in the 20th century. But if you examine his life, you discover that his life was an oscillation back and forth between deep spiritual practice and 
activism in the marketplace. Um, and um, I, I believe that we all too often act our political views and so forth, act them uh, out in a way that is not the most skillful way. And in, in my book, I, I try to, to choose characters over the course of, of our long history in this country who have combined deep introspection uh, in, in many different spiritual paths and skillful action in the, in the public arena um, and, and make the point that we don't actually become full human beings um, by just sitting on the mat. Sitting on the mat is essential and important, but we become full human beings when we also engage in the common good and the good of the whole community. And that's what draws us everything we've got forth. So it, I was going in each one of these characters, I was trying to draw forth this amazing humanism. And I don't want to call it heroism or heroism because it's in all of us. Um, but you, you get to see how an honest confrontation with the conflicts of our culture, our society, our times calls forth these um, opportunities and these skills and these geniuses from ordinary people just like us. So I really wanted to inspire my community, the yoga community, to, to, to understand that, that that's essential. Very, very well put. I, I had one, uh, just final comment, uh, and, and that is uh, people should read the book, The Dharma in Difficult Times. And one of the things I think people should keep in mind, and you brought it out uh, brilliantly in this uh, interview, and that is that may maybe the world would be maybe a, a much better place. Maybe a lot of our problems come because so many people are living a Dharma, not the Dharma that they were born to live, and yeah. that uh, people should explore and connect with people like Stephen Cope, who can maybe give them some guidance in, in, in hopefully our, our, some of our shows do that, in how to really pursue what your dharma is. Because I think if, uh, we, we have problems in the world so many people are doing what they shouldn't be doing. I, occasionally I'll go into a, 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 into a place where a, a, a restaurant or something and somebody's who the maitre d' is dealing with people and you can tell the last thing this person wants to do is deal with people. And I'm thinking, hey, Dharma, you know, but it, it goes right across the board and it's something that we need to incorporate more into our culture. And I think your book is a great starting point for that. So That's thank lovely. you for writing it and, and we highly recommend it and all the information will be posted up on, on thank our you. site. So thank, thank you, so you guys. Lovely to check in with you guys. Any final words for our viewers and listeners, Stephen? Well, come and see me at Kripalu sometime. We're, we're open I'd again as of March 28th. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful, yes, it's a Hilltop retreat, but we as an organization are really taking on the lessons of my book, I want you to know. Um, and um, so come and visit us and see what we're doing and take a retreat. And well, I'll you. see you in May. I am so looking forward to that, Phil. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm announcing here for the first time yeah. that I and my my wife and I are moving to Western Massachusetts. We'll be just down the road from real Apollo estate values will go up in Western Massachusetts. <laughs> already too late. Already have. <laughs> <laughs> By the time people listen to this, I may already be there. So, well, we're going to look forward to seeing you, you there. We're going to enfold you in the arms of. Propeller. I love it. 
You're just down the road. Okay, it's a deal. Okay, okay guys. So Thanks so, so much life. for being with us, Stephen. Again, Dharma for difficult times. And I would also uh, recommend that you go back and uh, read Stephen's prior books, which will be mentioned on the website. That's and right. uh, visit him at Kripalu. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Take care. Try with one. Bye.